You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I'd love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, Christine Simon is joining me to chat about the patron saint of Second Chances. Christine grew up in a very large and very loud Italian family and now lives with her husband and four children. The patron saint of Second Chances is her first novel. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Welcome, Christine. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good as well, and I'm really excited to speak about The Patron Saint of Second Chances. We all need this type of book right now. A happy, feel-good, really sweet but enjoyable story. I just loved it. Oh, I'm so glad that you liked it. Well, why don't we start out with you telling me a little bit about the book for those that won't have read it yet. Yeah, it's about a tiny Italian village of 212 people, one of whom is Signor Speranza, who's the mayor and the vacuum cleaner repairman. And the population has been dwindling for some years now. And Signor Speranza desperately wants things to stay the same, or not even the same. He would like to go back to the past, really. And then in the first chapter, he gets very bad news that the pipes have failed inspection. And so the Water Commission has told him that in order to repair them, it's going to cost uh, 70,000 euros, and he has 60 days to come up with the money, or they're going to cut the water off and everybody's going to be forced to leave. So he doesn't have any money. The town doesn't have any money. People are, you know, haven't been paying their taxes. There's no, there, there's no money here. So um, he comes up with a crazy scheme to start a rumor that a famous movie star, Dante Rinaldi, is filming his next project in town. And he's hoping that that will generate tourism and maybe he can even get some people to invest in the movie. And then, you know, after a little time goes by and he collects money through taxes, then he'll say, oh, the movie's canceled and he'll pay everybody back. But then what he doesn't count on is that everybody in the town gets really excited about the movie and everybody wants to be a part of it. And he finds that in order to keep the ruse going, he's going to have to make the movie for real. So how did you come up with this storyline? I was so (laughs) curious as I was reading it. Well, the initial idea came from uh, stories that I would see. I still see them sporadically about like towns in Italy, in rural areas, that the same situation, they've been losing their population over the years. And so there's mayors who have done, you know, kind of interesting, you know, cute little things to drum up publicity. Like in one, I can't remember the name of the town, but the mayor made it illegal to die. 
<laughs> and so he's trying to get people to, you know, or um, sometimes you'll see that they're selling homes for a dollar. And if you come in and you pledge that, you know, I'll put this much money into the house and renovate it, then they'll, they'll sell it to you for a dollar because they want people to live there. So I love that. And I was interested in, in setting a story in Italy. And so I was thinking, okay, well, if that's what he wants to do, he wants to save his town, what would be something that I could, you know, that would generate enough drama and comedy that I could use as his, his way to do it? And so that's when I came up with the movie, the movie idea. Well, I thought it was a ton of fun. And I thought it was so hilarious that all of the town wants to participate. Not only are they excited that the movie's going to be filmed there, but then they also want to roll or they want to help out or they want to do makeup, whatever it is. Right. They're a kooky bunch. <laughs> well, but that's what makes the story fun. Right. Did you have to do any research? Not not so much research. The The town in the book is based loosely on my, my grandparents' village of Ferrazzano, which is also, it's it's located in the same place as, as Prometto. I included the Bosco di Rodina, which is actually a real forest. And that is in Ferrazzano. And so, you know, I have lots of family photographs and videos. And my grandparents, they they came to, they live in uh, Cliffside Park, New Jersey now. And somehow they managed to kind of bring Ferrazzano with them. (laughs) So their backyard looks surprisingly similar to the Google image searches that you can get of Ferrazzano. I don't know how they did that. So it was kind of more an atmosphere than anything specific because it, it, even though it's based on Ferrazzano, it it is a fictional town. So you know, nothing had to be super accurate. And you got to create your own town. Yes, that was fun. I bet that was fun. This is your debut novel. What was your publishing journey like? Um, it was interesting because when I was looking for agents, I actually found my, my agent, Heli Ogden, is a UK agent. She's at Janklo UK. So the book actually sold in the UK first, which is very unusual. <laughs> that is unusual. That's yeah. really unusual. Yeah, and my UK editor Darcy Nicholson at Sphere, she had her vision and my vision for the book were the same. So we decided to go through the whole edit first. And so the book was done. It was already in production in the UK by the time it sold in the US. And then Caitlin Olson at Atria, she I think she had actually seen it. Like I don't I don't know what all the trade publications are in the in the publishing world. I don't know what they're all named, but she had seen it somewhere, like you know, listed as a you know a sphere book. And so she had actually requested to see it. So it was just a, it was a, just a perfect match. So I'm I'm so happy with how everything went, and they're both wonderful. And you know I'm I'm just so happy that that's where it all wound up. Is it already out in the UK? Um, no, but very soon it comes out in two weeks, uh, March seventeenth. So a little bit sooner than it comes out in the US. Yes, just a bit. Okay, well that's nice though that it's not completely split where you're having to do an entire tour and then turn around six months later right. and do it again. Yeah, it's nice. That is nice. Well, did you know you always wanted to write? And then what was your writing process like? Did you sit down and write this entire novel in a year? Was it a six-year thing? How did that work for you? No, it was It was actually, there was an earlier incarnation of, it, it's not even, I couldn't even call it a first draft because it bears no real resemblance to this book. But there was another book with Senor Speranza where it was kind of, you know, it, there wasn't much plot. He's wandering around. I think it was more like a discovery draft for, oh, I like this character. I like this setting. And then when I decided to rewrite it, it was it was the beginning of quarantine. It was, I think maybe it was it wasn't March, maybe it was April. And I wrote it very very fast. My my kids were on Zoom school and we couldn't leave the house. And I think maybe it was maybe like forty three days, something crazy. And 
I, I really, I discovered I really like writing fast because it, it makes it seem like it's more real and like it's actually happening. So I was able to kind of immerse myself in it better that way. And then my writing process, I like to write longhand and then type it all at the end. Wow. I don't like typing it, but, but I do like writing it longhand. Do you edit as you go when you write longhand and then you're typing it in? Do you make a lot of changes or do you stay true to what you've written? There's not not a lot of changes. I think I think when I typed it, I realized that a chapter was in the wrong place or that I didn't need it. So I I, I think I I kind of stripped it out as as I went. But no, not a, not a, not a tremendous amount of changes. I think the the biggest changes were when I went through the edit with Darcy. Yes, that makes sense. Well, have you always wanted to write, or did you just suddenly decide I'd like to write a book? How did that happen? When I was in, I, I think I was in fifth grade, and my my English teacher gave us like a an assignment. It was like a round robin assignment where it was a dark and storm, stormy night. And we all wrote, you know, for five minutes. And then she said, okay, switch. And then you, you'd pick up the next person's story and you'd write for five more minutes, switch. And I remember we were, we had broken for lunch and, you know, one of my classmates said, oh, I really like your story. Like, are you going to be a writer when you grow up? And I was just like, it was, it was, it was like a book moment where like, I actually couldn't speak. Like I was just struck by this because even though I'd always liked you know, I loved reading books. I had never really truly occurred to me that someone wrote them. And so I, th- I think from that time, I guess I was 10, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, that's what I want to do. You're like, people can do that for a living? Yes. How crazy. <laughs> that is. That's really fun. I love that. Well, what was the hardest part about writing this book? Hmm. I think, I think the hardest part was actually the revision after, after you know, I had my editor. I think that there was a point when my husband said it was so funny because every day I would come downstairs after writing for hours and I would come downstairs and I would be like, okay, I think the worst is behind me. This chapter was really hard. I got it in shape. I think it's downhill from here. And then the next day I'd come down and say the exact same thing. Like every chapter was like, oh my God, I need to rip this down to the studs. So that was really hard. And I think like for, uh, you know, I was like, oh my God, maybe I can't do it. I'll just call her and I'll, you know, I'm really sorry. (laughs) Here, you can have your money back. I, I can't do it. So that, that I think was the hardest part, but then it was a tremendous feeling of accomplishment once it was done. I always think the editing process would be really interesting because as you've said, you had your draft, you've turned it in, and then you have somebody telling you, well, maybe this section should be in a different place, or I don't really like this character, or this person needs to be better developed. That has got to be very hard. I, I think it's just because it's so vast. Like my book's not even, you know, I mean, some books I can't imagine, you know, I have a 150,000 word book. I can't even imagine how you would tackle that. But, you know, mine is a very average length book and it was just like, oh my God, it's so big, like trying to see it all at one time. That was kind of tricky. So, you know, I had lots of kind of like outlining after it's done, like, okay, this happens and this happens and this happens. You know, trying to outline it from a bird's eye view before trying to get down on the ground and move the words around. Especially because once you're at that stage, if you do move things around, it's a domino effect. So it's not like you just move one little thing here, but all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, in chapter two, this happens, which can no longer happen in chapter 10. You know, you have to kind of be moving everything around and thinking about it. So I think the idea of an outline where you then can say, okay, if I make this change here, I've got to change it. These other five places probably really helps. Yeah. It's like, it's like spinning plates. It's a little crazy. I would think it would be really crazy. I've never obviously been through that process, but I think it would be difficult. And then also I think it would be difficult if there was some particular event that you loved or a small character that you loved and the editor's like, yeah, no, thanks. We need to pull this out. Yeah. There was um, like Darcy, I mean, her taste is fantastic. So if she said she really hated something, it was like, okay, it's it, we're done. It's it's, uh, it's out. 
there was there were some things where she'd say, well, I don't know if this really, like maybe this is too much of a detour from the main story. We want to keep it really clean. Like, you know, let's stay on the main story the whole time. I think there were only a couple of things that I had to really, really try to make them fit. And I think one was I have Senora Barbaro and Senora Padula when they're, they're, they see the priest and they think he's Jesus. And I just loved it. And I just wanted to keep it. And it just, it, it didn't, I, I, I had cut it originally. And I was like, okay, you know, it doesn't belong here. And then I was so excited when I found a place where it fit, where it wasn't disrupting the action. It was just that, you know, Senor Speranza was waiting. I can't remember what the context was, but he was waiting to, to see the all clear. And um, I was able to fit it in there. And I was so happy to keep it. That is nice. Because as you said, if it's something that you were really working to keep in there, you would not want to have to remove it. Right. Well, what do you hope readers take away from your book? I think, you know, the, this story goes... I think it goes from apathy at the beginning to enthusiasm at the end. And it's kind of, you know, even though they're they're living in this very small town and everyone should be very close, everyone's kind of drifted apart. And then coming together for a common cause, there's this tremendous sense of community and joy and togetherness. And I, I think, you know, especially that I wrote it during quarantine, it was like, oh my God, when are we going to be able to see people again? I think that was one of the things that I loved so much about escaping into it was that, you know, these people could be together. So I think. I think just that, that sense of community and how important that is. And I think there's just so much bad news right now. So to escape into a story like this that has a happy feeling and a feeling of community and coming together is what everyone needs. Right. Yeah. What about how your title and cover came about? The title, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it it did not sell with this title. The title it sold with was um, The Man Who Pulled His Village from the Sea, which comes from the the part where, you know, Senor Speranza is a very determined man. And he's very stubborn. And, you know, he remembers his talking about earthquakes when he was young, like that if an earthquake were ever to hit Prometo, and even if it was to, you know, dash it into the sea, he would just wade in and drag it back out again, because he's, he, he just believes that he can do it. But then, you know, we felt like that was too literary sounding a title for something that's, that's funny. And it was, it was very, it was very tricky balance trying to find a title that didn't sound too literary so that people aren't expecting comedy. But at the same time, we didn't want it to be so throwaway and light that it didn't reflect some of the poignancy in the book also. So we did, we went back and forth so many times and, and the titles kept getting longer and longer. I, I think at one point it was the patron saint of motion pictures and vacuum cleaner repair. And it was like, <laughs> okay, it's too much. It's spun out of control. We won't even be able to fit the title on the cover. Yes, exactly. So, um, you know, at a certain point, we decided we did like the patron saint angle because of Senor Speranza's, you know, dedication to the saints right. and how he's always looking for the proper saint to pray for. And then it, I, I think it was it was actually Darcy who came up with the combination of second chances. I like that. And I agree with you that your first title sounds too literary. It's so funny how you don't really think that that's a thing until you start hearing titles and somebody will say one like in this instance and I'll, the second I hear it, I'm like, that sounds very literary yes. or thriller titles or romance titles. It's just funny how there's just a bent toward those different things. Yeah. Well, that was one of the things that I hadn't realized that the title and the cover are, they're marketing devices. Right. And that was something that was so difficult to wrap my head around. I was like, oh, okay. Like I, I, I get it now. And even the covers, there's the, co- the UK cover and the US cover are different. Because especially in this area of the market, they they tend to have very different covers. And the UK cover is like a straw hat, and it has it has like chalky colors of like 
kind of like an aqua blue and yellow and very bouncy letters. And it's kind of capturing a, you know, a bouncy, fun mood. And it looks a little bit like um, a vintage travel poster. And then in the U.S., it's very evocative of place. It's, you know, you actually get to see Prometto in the background and you see kind of the stand-in for Senor Speranza in the front. It is very evocative of place. That's a great way to state it. Right. I love both of them. I, I couldn't even say which is my favorite. I, I love them both. Well, I've got to go look up the U.K. cover because I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's really cute. I always think that's such a fascinating thing because not only is it targeting a market, but it's also the the cover designer's idea of your story. You know, you could give it to 20 people and they're going to come up with 20 different covers. And so I think when you really then spread that across the world, it really opens it up. Yeah, it's really interesting. The whole The whole thing has been really cool to learn about. I think so too. I am completely fascinated by covers and titles and how all of that comes about. Well, I know you're just getting this one out into the world, but are you working on anything else at the present? Um, I am working on something else. It's also set in a, a small town. It's it's kind of, you know, it's like vapor right now, but we're getting there. <laughs> well, it takes a while and you want to enjoy getting this one out there. Right. Well, before we wrap up, why don't you tell me what you've read recently that you really liked? I really liked The Twyford Code by Janice Hallett. I don't know. And I, I haven't read The Appeal yet, which is so ridiculous because that just came out in the US. But I, somehow I stumbled across a, an excerpt of The Twyford Code. And once I had started reading it, I was like, okay, oh my God, I'm going to have to order it. So I ordered it from Waterstones in the UK and I loved it. I, I read it in two days. It was fantastic. And then the other one I read, and it had been on, on my to be read pile for ages, was, is Better Luck Next Time by Julia Claiborne Johnson. I love that book. I love that book. It's so, so good. It's like watching an old movie. It really is. I saw that she had blurbed your book. So I was like, oh, okay, I automatically know I'm going to love this book because I love her and that book. But it is just such a wonderful story. And uh, I love Ward. Yes. Well, she's wonderful. She she does humor mixed with, you know, pathos and like touching drama. She does the balance so incredibly well. It's it, She's awesome. Well, I think it's interesting because as I was reading your book, I was actually thinking about the humor aspect of it because there were so many times when it made me smile and I just loved that. And you just don't see that much of that. I was thinking about Amy Popel as well. I think she does that very well. Right. Yes. But I wish we had more stories like that. I enjoy it. It's like um, like gentle fiction. I, I love Alexander McCall Smith and his, especially his number one ladies detective agency books. And I, I love the balance of humor and and... And, you know, they're just, it's just a gentle read. I love those. I agree. On the Janice Hallett book, is that a newer book? I mean, is it coming out in the UK? It's already out in the UK, but will it be out here later or is it an older title? It's out in the UK and I would imagine that it's out here next year because the the appeal just right. came out. So probably a year from now, I would I would imagine. Okay. And so I guess the appeal had come out in the UK first and then just came out here. So it's going to be yes. the same type of thing, just a delayed publication. Okay. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Um, what's it about exactly? The um, the Twyford Code is about this guy who, I don't know, did you read The Appeal? I did. Okay. That one is in, I think, email. Again, I didn't read it, but I think it's in emails and like text messages. Like it's a unique format. Right. This one is voice um, recordings. Like they find a phone that has, you know, all these voice recordings on it. So it's it's kind of first person narration. And I mean, I, I, I guess it is first-person narration. And it's about this guy who gets obsessed with his teacher who went missing when he was, I don't, I don't know how old he was supposed to have been. 
maybe like 13 years old, and his teacher went missing after having shown the class, read the class this book by Edith Twyford, who kind of, I think she's supposed to be like a, like an Enid Blyton type character. I think that's who, sh- who she's really supposed to be. Okay. And there's this mystery, like that maybe there's a code concealed in these children's books. And that, you know, his teacher, Miss Isles, was looking, was trying to solve the code and took them on a field trip, and then she vanished. And so he's trying to find out what happened to her and if it had something to do with the code that was in the Twyford books. Well, that sounds really good. It was, re- I mean, it was like, I couldn't stop reading it. It was really, really good. Christine, it was wonderful to talk with you about the patron saint of second chances, and I can't wait for everybody else to read it. Thanks for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Thank you so much, Cindy. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.